You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Let me invite you to turn with me this morning to our text, which is Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. Continuing on with our series through the book of Revelation, we're actually looking forward this summer in the month of July, which is around the time we typically take a break from preaching verse by verse through a book of the Bible to cover a topic that the pastors feel will be important and helpful to our church. And in July, we'll be preaching about how and why we love the Bible. And so this is a good time to be thinking about who you might even invite. As much as we are a go-and-tell church, we also want to be a come-and-hear church. We want others to come and hear the Word of God. We want them to come and hear the songs that we're singing and learn more about Jesus and how wonderful He has been to us by His grace that they may come in to His covenant family with us and become part of us together to increase our voice the size and volume of the voice that we have to glorify him in the world and to exalt the gospel uh, everywhere that we can. We want to see this happen. So be thinking about those that you can invite for that series because it'll be a good opportunity for them to hear more about the treasures that we have in Christ. Naomi Judd died yesterday. I grew up Listening to a fair bit of country music, you know that you're a real country music fan when you say fair bit. I listened to a fair bit of country music, and certainly the Judds were part of that, so I spent some time yesterday afternoon and evening kind of listening through their Spotify channel. Naomi Judd was part of a country duo in the 80s and 90s, if you're not aware, with her daughter Winona, and in fact, they were just uh, right on the few moments away from being inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame today. And it seems, though not a lot of details are out, it seems that Naomi Judd died yesterday from a heart and mind that was troubled by life. You know what I mean. And when I heard that, it just reminded me again that it goes to show that even at the relative top, Life is hard, and life is painful. And even the brightest moments, which would have been one today, one that almost makes the whole story unfathomable, just seems dark and meaningless. And it's a reminder to us in this life of just how very much we need serious saving from a miserable and fallen world. And that many of us go through similar things, even down here where, where many of us are, in the middle, at the bottom, somewhere that life is hard and painful, and that we need, like many others, we need a regular interlude of hope. When the theater play on stage takes a break at intermission, there's an orchestral interlude. It's a time in which everything breaks and there's a rhythm of of considering what has come before and thinking about what's coming again. It's a kind of rest. And there's a spiritual kind of interlude that all of us need, a regular rhythm of reflection and remembrance of the hope that we have in Christ. 
And I'm grateful that God in his wisdom has provided that for us in our lives. We have certain rhythms that we all feel and recognize. We, we hopefully have, but certainly can do better at, at building those into our lives, making sure that in our busy life where everything is moving so fast, whether it's because of work or school or family or kids or, or trouble and temptation, whatever, that we can find some way to take a break and have an interlude of hope a reminder to us of exactly what God is up to in the world and why he is so trustworthy, why he is so good, and why we can trust him. And we have a wonderful opportunity to do that this morning because it seems to me that God has factored in just such an interlude into this book of Revelation at the beginning of chapter 7, the first three verses. And so what we want to see this morning is this reminder of the hope that we have in Christ. We see something really striking here in the first three verses of chapter 7 because we've come out, as you know, from a really terrifying bit of scripture where we have looked through six seals that have been broken, including the four horsemen who are wreaking all kinds of havoc in the world and what I believe is, is a literal future time of tribulation in the world in which believers at that time will endure by God's grace. He will care for them, but it will be hard. It will be painful that it will be dark. And so here we have contrasted together from what we have seen already in the book of Revelation recently to now in these first three verses of chapter 7, we have seen a kind of contrast, we'll see that this morning, between those who belong to Christ and the comfort and assurance that they have in the midst of trouble contrasted with the pagan world all around that has been thrown at this time into utter panic. This is the truth that I think I need in my heart more. This is the interlude of hope that I think we all need as believers and our church needs to regularly reconsider where our hope is to be found and why. And we want to do that this morning by noticing three truths that bring hope to our lives at all times. If you're the kind of person that takes notes when you hear preaching, here are the three truths. First, that God's plan is set. Second, that God's authority is full. And third, that God's protection is sure. Let me read through these three verses at the beginning of chapter 7 so that we can catch the context and then work our way to see these three truths that they might encourage us and help us and might even be for me or some of you, a necessary interlude in this moment, a break of hope. Revelation chapter 7 begins this way. John says, After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, holding the seal of the living God, and he called out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. The first truth that we want to see from these three verses is that God's plan is set. But we're going to jump down just a little to verse 2, in particular, the first and second clause 
kind of a nerdy thing when it comes to Bible reading and, and preaching is you notice that uh, sometimes we refer to passages of Scripture by the Scripture reference number and then also some letters. Those letters just go in order and point out the clauses of the text so that we might be able to zoom in on one piece here or one piece there and draw the truth out of it. So this first truth, the reason it says on the screen verse 2a and b is that we would look down at verse 2 and notice the first two clauses when we're looking to find that God's plan is set. It says, I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, holding the seal of the living God. And he called out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. The fifth angel here holds the seal of the living God. You've heard about seals already. We've noticed that six seals were broken on what appear to be like scrolls that would open up. And in this vision of John, uh, that John has that different, uh, the four horsemen and different things happening in the world that God unleashes sort of come out of the scrolls and into the world. But that seal that is pictured on the scroll is a kind of soft wax seal that carries with it all of the authority and control and majesty of the one to whom the seal belongs, typically the king. And therefore the king has sealed these scrolls and when the seal is broken, then his plans come forth. We see here that this fifth angel is actually holding the seal of the living God. He has, in a sense, at least in this picture, custody of the true God's plan by holding on to the tool with which he seals or marks his plans as his. It is a symbol of his perfect control, of his perfect plan, and that his plan is set. As a servant of God, this angel shows by holding that seal God's ultimate control and care. Again, carrying in that seal the full authority of the office that it represents. And in this case, there is no higher office. And there is no greater seal than the seal that this angel is holding. This truth about God's control brings us two things. Brings us a lot of comfort. But it also can bring us a lot of concern. I think most of us probably feel that in our Christian lives. We, we trust God. We know that he is sovereign. But mixed in there, there's this, this, this rubbing together of, of comfort and concern. Well, in this text, we see this working out in the holding of this seal. And we are reminded of this, this strange duality. That the plans of God, even in the book of Revelation especially in the book of Revelation, are concerning. If you have read through the first six chapters of Revelation and you're not concerned, you have not been reading. You haven't been reading well. You haven't been focused on what you're reading. Your eyes may, like mine sometimes, do gloss over the words and you pick them up. And yes, that's very familiar. Wow, that's amazing. Oh, wow, what, what will that be like? As though it's some imaginary thing story that's being told, but it'll never come true. But if you really read the book of Revelation and you really believe what God says, you have no choice but to be concerned. It's concerning. It's, it's even maybe the word would be terrifying 
These are terrifying things. The anticipation of, of ultimate suffering and chaos and difficulty and war and death and famine. There is a strange duality here. Because just as we read in the book of Revelation, these concerning future plans, he has planned hard things to come on the path to his final kingdom, this ultimate king. The plan of God is also, for those who have faith in Christ and can see it for what it is, ultimate comfort by knowing his love and ultimate good. That's why I think this interlude exists. Because coming out of these scenes of terror and difficulty, there needs to be the moment, the break, to reorient around what's ultimately true and what is the ultimate hope. And that is God's plan is set to the comfort and the care of his people. But this is something you have to have eyes to see. It's, it's a little bit like, in my mind, um, it's a little bit like fire. You know what fire does? Well, to the ordinary person, you would look at fire and say, oh, it destroys, it burns up, it pops and sizzles and, and throws out embers. It, whatever it touches, it destroys and, and brings it down to nothing but ashes. Well, that's a very concerning thought and picture of what fire can do, and that certainly is what it can do. But that's not all that it does. It does something else. In the midst of that, that burning and popping and throwing out embers, it also is putting out light and heat. It is giving such, such an important benefit and blessing. But in order to recognize that, in order to know that and enjoy that, you have to be able to look through the fire. You have to be able to look through the terror of the first six seals to see the God who is behind them and his ultimate care and love in his perfect plan for the world and for you as someone who belongs to him. You have to be able to look through it. That's why we need the constant reminder, the constant regular interlude of hope so that when we look through the difficult things of life, which many of us are experiencing right now, for many of us, either in the room or on the live stream or watching this later, there are things going on in life that are dark. They are painful. They're hard. For some of us, they are so difficult and so painful and so hard that in the despair of the moment, you cannot see anything else. The brightest anticipation of your life maybe just around the corner awaiting you and you know it's there and you cannot see it. It looks dark and despairing to you. This is why we need the light and the heat of God's hope in regular interlude. This is why we need it over and over again to wash over us. We need the vision of his caring control brought nearer and nearer and nearer to our eyes. Because ultimately, that's where our real problems are. It's when that vision becomes so far away that it's blurred and darkened by the distance that we just can't see it. But it's there. We need it brought forward. A few of us had an opportunity to go to the one last Together for the Gospel Conference. It's been going on 12 or 15 years, I think. And fantastic conference for... for uh, 
Christians to attend and hear great preaching and theology. In particular, there's a kind of pastoral component to it. So there are a lot of pastors there and getting to hear from, from sort of, it's ah, a real weird word to say, but like iconic pastors, you know, well-known pastors who've had enormous impact on in particular us as pastors, but also many of the Christians have read their books and listened to their preaching and keep up with their ministry and have been really blessed by them. So it's one of those things where like you get there and it's amazing to see these people that you may not have seen in person before. You see them only on YouTube or read their books, but to see them and to hear from them and to be in the same giant room with them, but you're there with 12,000 other people. It's a sea of people packed into this, this convention center and the stage is all the way down at the front. And one of the things that caught my attention the moment that we got there, because I've not been to the gospel or together for the gospel conference before this year. But to get there, the first thing that I noticed was just how far away that stage is. It is so far away that whoever is preaching is just like a blip all the way at the far end of the room. Almost can't see the person. I almost can't tell who it is. So what do they do? They have to provide these giant screens, much bigger than this one, though this one is fantastic. Much bigger, enormous screens, and they're tied into the rafters, and they get closer and closer throughout the audience for that very purpose. Because it's one thing to have that truth, that preaching, that message, way at the other end of the room. It's another thing to have it right up in front of you. And it was immensely helpful because finally you can see them. You see the, the, the expressions on their faces. You see the, the movements of their bodies that go along with what they're saying. It adds a whole other dimension to the preaching of God's word at this conference. And as I looked at that, I thought, that is exactly what I need in my life. That's exactly what we as Paramount Church need in our lives. We need a set of screens that will spiritually bring the truth closer and closer to us when it seems so far away. That's what the interlude of hope must do. That's what this routine that we all need can do for us. It needs to bring the hope of Christ closer and closer and closer all the time. In fact, that really is what it means to be a Christian, isn't it? That's what it means to be mature. What does it mean to be a mature Christian? It means that the truth is progressively closer and closer and closer to you. Clearer and clearer and clearer to your eyes. And that's what this text can do for us. It reminds us of this first important truth that God's plan is set. In fact, this is, like those screens, something that the Word of God continually brings to us over and over again throughout. There's not just one verse that says this. In fact, it's almost stamped on every page of the Bible. Here are just a few other places. In Hebrews 13, 8, we read that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. That's another way of saying that God's plan is set. It's not fluctuating and changing. Or Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. It never fades away. It never withers like the plants outside or flowers in the yard. It's always fresh. It's always bright. His plan is set. 
Or even in James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights. That's a reference to the stars in the sky that seem to be the most static thing in the universe. When we look up, we don't even see them moving. With whom, like those stars, there is no variation or shadow due to change. His plan is set. One of the best things that this truth right here does for us is it makes God predictable. Now, that may be a confusing thought because it seems like, boy, that really doesn't that really bring God too far down that he's, he's predictable? No, it doesn't. Because it is his will to be predictable. It is in his nature to be predictable. In fact, that is one of the things that sets him apart from so many other gods in the world. He is predictable. He is trustworthy. Now, does that mean that you can know exhaustively everything about God? Can you unpack the mind of God? Of course not. Will you know everything that he knows? Even in heaven one day, will you have full knowledge of his plans and everything about him? Of course, no, you won't. He's the only one who has that. But the good news of God's plan being set and his unchanging nature and his declaration and revelation of his word and who he is is that we can, to some degree, predict him. He is trustworthy. Therefore, in those moments, we can cling to what we know about him and hold on to it with confidence. It's not going to slip through our fingers. He's not going to pull out the, the rug out from under us. He's not going to suddenly change and put on a different face. Therefore, when we come just to these couple of clauses in verse 2, here's a good application for us. Here's a good thing that we all need to grow in. We all need to grow in being able to answer this question when hard things happen. What might God be after in this? You could ask, and because of his word and his revelation of himself to you in Christ as a Christian, you can to some helpful degree answer that question. You have all kinds of things. So you think about something difficult and challenging in your life, and it becomes confusing. Why is this happening? Take a moment. Take an interlude of hope and pause and ask that question before the Lord with your Bible. What might God be up to in this? Can I think of some things that match his nature and character? Can I think of some things that resemble other ways that he's worked in my life? Maybe this is what he's up to. Maybe that is what he's up to. Maybe he wants to accomplish this in my life. Maybe this is something that he wants to teach me. And because he is somewhat predictable, that can give us hope. That can give us direction to pursue godly results from this hard thing. But we must get good at answering that question. What is God up to? What does it look like the God I know could be doing in this moment? Because he has a plan. And the good news is that his plan is set. But second, we see that God's authority is full. Another little bit of the text, verse 2, part C. This is where we're reading about him granting by authority what happens in the world. Notice he says, it's starting again at the beginning of verse 2, and I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, holding the seal of the living God. And he called out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. 
Here's a place where our comfort of his set plan is multiplied. And it's multiplied because not only has he set a plan, but he has actually what no one else in the world has. He has the authority to accomplish it. That's what the Bible means when it talks about granting. To whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, he called out with a loud voice to the four angels. All of the things that are happening in the book of Revelation, in fact, all of the things that are happening in Scripture, have in them a kind of granting. It is a picture of God's desk. You've thought about that before when decisions are made in a corporation or organization. You think about that desk that they must pass by. There's someone in charge, someone with authority, someone who can approve and stamp everything that will happen in the organization. God has a desk. And there is nothing that misses that desk. It all passes right in front of him. And he has the ultimate authority to deal with them. Sometimes I think of that story, you may have heard it before, of Henry Ford, the founder of Ford Motors, who was being peppered with questions in an interview, and he was getting kind of irritated because he was being challenged about what he knows and what he has the authority to do and, and, and how he runs his business. And he was having trouble answering the questions, and so in frustration he said, I don't have to answer your questions. I don't have to answer very many questions at all because I have a row of buttons on my desk, and when someone asks me a question, I just have to push the right button and someone will come and tell me the answer. There is a kind of hint in that of what it must be like for God, but he doesn't push the button to have someone else come and tell him. He has everything that he needs on his desk. He has, it's a weird way to put it, he has all the buttons. And he knows and has the authority to push whichever one he wants. And when he does, whatever he wishes to happen will be granted. A couple other passages in Scripture where we read about this kind of granting in ways that really matter. Romans 2, verse 4. Paul says, Do you think lightly of the kindness of God? Do you not know that his kindness leads you to or grants you repentance? Or in James 1.17, again, that every good thing given and every perfect gift comes down from him who grants it. There's a common debate in this issue of his granting, isn't there? We often know it as the difference between causing and allowing Sometimes we find ourselves when difficult things happen or God does something really, really big and astounding or, or really even painful and, and concerning, we fall into this debate about whether he causes or allows it. There's this kind of parsing that we're always doing, but in reality, they're not very much different. When you have a God who has his plan set and he has ultimate authority over all things, there's really not very much distance between causing and allowing. The reason that we talk about that is because we're concerned that if we view an event one way or the other, it says something about God. So we feel the need to kind of parse out these things because we fear that, that one view might lead us to say or think that God must be evil because he did this thing. Or maybe he's uncaring because he did this other thing. But it's really not a matter of sorting out whether it's cause or allowance. 
It's more sorting out the goodness of his authority. If you know that God is good, if you know that he loves you, it doesn't matter whether he causes or allows because it's all one. It's all part of his good authority at work in our lives. We're regularly singing this kind of truth because it in the interlude of hope is what we so very much need. We so need our God to be bigger. In my life and in your life, there are far too many moments when our God is too small. That's why we wonder if he can really do what he says he's going to do or if he really loves me the way he says he loves me. It's because our God is too small. We need a God that's big. And we can have a God that's big because he has full authority in his love and his concern and his care. And therefore, in that, we're not afraid to say that God is in control because we know his heart. We know what he is like. The screens of his truth in his word are ever closer to our faces and we know what he is up to. It's a beautiful reality for those who know Christ. We want to embrace this. That's why we sing about it, we talk about it, we preach about it as much as we can. Even this morning, we will sing another song, one that we've been singing a lot recently because the truth is so rich and so important. It's the song, Christ, Our Hope in Life and Death, which harkens from that Heidelberg Catechism question number one, what is your only comfort in life and in death that I'm not my own but belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ? That's the one that we want to sing about. That's the one that we want to know about. Listen to these words that we're going to sing in a moment, and maybe they'll help give some flavor to them, that we'll sing them in a new way when we come across them and take them with us. Listen to what these words of the song says. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. Christ alone. What is our only confidence that our souls to him belong? And here it is. Who holds our days within his hand? What comes apart from his command? Nothing. What will keep us to the end? The love of Christ in which we stand. He's the one who's caring for us. He's the one who holds everything together. He holds our days in his hand. And whatever comes, every nothing is apart from his command. That's the truth. That's what we're hearing here. That's what it means when it says, they called out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. It's a little confusing what this is. It kind of seems like to some of uh, Bible scholars that, that there's some things out of order here, that chapter 7, 1, and 1 through 3 maybe kind of come a little before chapter 6 in their kind of chronology of the events, because it's as if the four horsemen haven't come yet. There's this holding off. There's this protection that's happening. But either way, we're reminded here that our ultimate hope is that his authority is full. No one questions him. No one thwarts his plans. No one concerns him. Not a moment in history has God been wringing his hands, wishing he knew what to do, or that someone was getting in his way. Not once. In fact, in the very end, through all of the trouble and tribulation, we are assured, along with Christ, that he will not lose one. None of us who know him by faith truly 
none of us will be lost in the fire. That's good news for us this morning, but what it means is we need also here with a second life application to open our lives to this ongoing rescue that he has planned for us. That means that we can expect his real blessing even in these hard, dark moments, even in this world. If we have eyes to see what he is doing and ears to hear his great promises to us, we can know this in the reminder that his authority is full. But finally, we also are assured of this in verses 1 and 3, that his protection is sure. This, I think, is the real heart of the interlude of hope here coming out of the terror of the six seals is this reminder that in the midst of it all, as his people enter through, go through this trouble, he will protect them and that he will protect them perfectly. Let's read again these verses 1 and 3. John says, After I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. It seems that these may be the four horsemen. Often this kind of language is used to to reflect this, this power in the world. And certainly we've seen four winds, four horsemen who are about to go off into the world to do God's will. But it's holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. Why? It says in verse 3, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. Our experience in this world, which we see in these little ways, you know, this, these rhythms or these, these patterns of difficulty and challenge, trials and troubles and tribulations, which here in Revelation it seems are going to be intensified in the future, our experience of them in this fallen world calls out for God's care. This is what I think all of these difficulties are doing. All of the troubles in the world, we see the, the, the war and the famine and the struggle and difficulty, all of the heartache in the world, I think it's being used in God's hands because It's the kind of thing that he would do to bring people to him, causing them to cry out for someone who could actually care for them. You don't have to go through this world very long to find that there's no one that can care for you. Not really. If you go too far outside the social bounds of of the structures that we've set up that keep everything relatively under control, you get outside of those and it seems almost hopeless. Who can care for you outside the gate? Even he can. This inevitable question is written into the fall of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Who cares? Who cares for us? Well, we have the answer here in verses 1 and 3. It's the striking picture of God's care. And again, they're presented in some simple words. In particular, the word hold back. God is holding back for the sake of his people all of these events in the world that would happen because he has a priority for his people. He does not only focus on himself in his plans. In fact, that's the miracle of the gospel. The miracle of the gospel is that God has brought sinful people to himself and actually into his plans close to him and they are important to him. We are not just pawns as some would have us think, in God's plan to glorify himself. 
He has done something even better than that. He glorifies himself, not just by moving the pieces around and using us for his ends. He actually blesses us with his ends. He brings us into his glory, into his truth, into his plans, not simply to satisfy his own heart and plan, but to satisfy our hearts as well. Think of the giant dam called the Hoover Dam. Think of this in this picture. It's that kind of picture of the incredible pressure and weight of these four horsemen and other difficulties of the the four winds of the earth being held back. Being held back like the Hoover Dam between Nevada and Arizona using this arch gravity kind of dam. Do you know what would happen if the Hoover Dam broke? 10 million acres of land would instantly be underwater and flooded. Now, if you were to take that, and we cannot because our minds are too small, and actually match it or extrapolate it and raise it up to the, to the immense proportions of what's happening in these texts of Scripture, prophesying what's happening in the future, it's the whole world. There is a whole world of trouble and pressure coming upon the world, of judgment and difficulty. But what is God doing for his people? He is holding it back for them. He's holding it back, and this is the picture of his ultimate protection for us. There is another place that we see it. Before we come to a close, I want to point it out. It is not only in the holding back of verse 1, but it's also in the sealing of the bondservants in verse 3. There it is again. It's that picture of the seal. It's the king's seal of soft wax that puts his authority and his plan into place on those scrolls and then broken and released in the world. It's that seal that the angel is holding in his hand, representing the ultimate authority and the set plan of God. But here it is again. And it's a seal that seals or marks the bondservants of God on their foreheads. It's very similar to what we read about when the blood is placed over the doorposts and it's a sign in which there will be sparing of life and salvation. It's the antithesis of the beast in Revelation 13 that will mark his followers with a sign on their foreheads. What is going on in this image of the seal? God is sparing, God is protecting, God is caring for his people. He is ministering to them. Last week, we celebrated the Lord's Supper and we said some probably newer, weirder things uh, when we took it. And those were things about God ministering to us. For many of us like me, that's something I had to get used to. The idea that God is ministering to me, it seems backward. It seems like he's doing something only I should do to him. But in fact, that's what Jesus does. He ministers to people. He ministers to you every single day. In fact, he never sleeps He's constantly ministering to you. He's constantly caring for you. In physical ways, he's keeping your brain working. He's keeping your heart beating. He's keeping your lungs breathing. But in spiritual ways, he's constantly working his grace in our hearts. He's orchestrating everything in our lives because of his ultimate protection and care and love for us. He's ministering to us. And there's an incredible moment here in the sealing of the bondservants of God, his protection of them. It's a reminder to us in this present moment that he will not leave us in the cold. Be thankful today 
that our God is not capricious. Like the gods of the world. You know that the followers of Islam have no assurance at all whatsoever that Allah will accept them in the end. None. They can live a perfectly righteous life according to all of his dictates, and in the end, he still still might turn his back on them. Or among the Mormons who have the same kind of situation, they never can be quite sure if they're actually going to make it in the end. In fact, only Jesus and Jesus alone has made it to the highest level of heaven to which they're trying to attain. Only Jesus. Never can be sure, but that's not true for the followers of Christ. We can be sure. You know, sometimes it's misguided when we do it. Sometimes, as Christians, we use uncertainty to motivate us to righteous living. We hold over each other's heads or even over our own heads this idea that if you don't stick to the plan, he might just let you go in the end. You might not be good enough. We think that that's a good motivator. And sometimes it sure feels like it is because that's one way to get people to go along with the plan, threaten them. But we have something far better in Christ. It's not the threats that if you don't, he's going to let you go. It's the promise that even if you didn't, and you will, he will not let you go. He has sealed you with his Holy Spirit who indwells you. He is the down payment on your soul until the very day. He's going to take care of you. This is the joy that we have. This is the hope of our protection. This is a part of the interlude of hope. I want to remind you here at the end and then pray together this passage that you heard a bit earlier in Isaiah 41. Listen to verses 10 through 13. You might take this with you, jot it down and make it part of your devotional time this week. Encourage yourself and others with it because it is so rich about God's faithfulness to Israel into which we have been grafted by faith in Christ. We belong. We are true Israel with the rest And these promises belong to us. He says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing, shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all, for I, the Lord your God, hold your hand. I, the Lord your God, hold your hand. How in the world do you square that with the creator of the universe? High and exalted, unlike anyone else, Incredible in wrath, incredible in justice, angry with the world all day long. But I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, I am the one who helps you. That's the truth that we need. That is the interlude of hope. That is the break that we need regularly. You and I have to come back to this over and over and over again. You need to get this image in your heart and mind. 
He holds your hand. In the midst of all of these troubles, this miserable, miserable fallen world, it is coming to ultimate ruin. We can polish it all we want. Put all the technology you want into outer space. You can shine up all the buildings and you can clean all the glass. You can make it look great. In the end, it is nothing. It's under the curse of sin. But he holds our hand. And that's the hope that we have. And that's why we live the lives that we live. Well, let's ask God this morning to help us then to hold his hand as he holds ours that we would strengthen our grip on the truth, on the hope that we have, because he certainly is not letting go. Our Father, this morning we come before you humbled by the truth of the hope that we have in you. This world and even your plans are frightening to us at times. We find ourselves in dark despair and the deep hole of sin and suffering and temptation, trial and trouble between the world, our own flesh and the devil, and sometimes we... We don't know which way is up. We don't know where to go. We cannot see where the light is. And so we need you to shine your light again. We need you to to pump our hands and remind us that you are there. You are holding us. You are caring for us. We pray that you would help us this week and in the weeks to come as we continue in the book of Revelation and we continue seeing the unfolding of your plan in our own daily lives that we would cling to you, we would hold on to you, and that we would know that you love us. Your plan is set, your authority is full, and your protection of us is sure because you have told us in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.